We're going to look at Psalm 145 today. Uh, there's a lot. Uh, are the ushers out there? If you, I say this every week, but to try to get you in the habit of making sure you grab the outline when you come in. Uh, but if you need one, hold up your hands and they'll bring you one. Uh, because if you've noticed, I've kind of changed the way I do my outlines. They're, they're a little bit more devotional. I'm trying to put them together in a way that you can take it home with you uh, for the week. Uh, to meditate over some things, to look at some questions. You can use these in your CPR group, uh, CPR leaders. Uh, oh, I'm doing Ramirez's. You're not in the right place. What are you doing? So I'm all confused now. Okay. Somebody took your seats. How dare they? Okay. Well, okay. I'm okay now. I've got worked out. All right. But take that with you and reflect on those questions. Uh, and think about those, discuss those at your CPR group. And uh, and you notice uh, some of the things on the outline I'll have for you on the screen. Some of the things I won't uh, because you're not going to like this, but because I want you to dig into the passage yourself uh, to uh, get into the scriptures and look at it yourself. But let's pray uh, before we uh, turn to God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we now are going to open your word. Uh, I confess from the very beginning, I'm a very fallible, uh, weak uh, preacher. uh, And we need your Holy Spirit to uh, illuminate your words and to illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we might understand what you're saying to us. Uh, We need you to shake us out of our spiritual lethargy. Uh, We need you to rescue us from all the false thoughts that we have about you. Uh, We need you to rattle our cages, uh, to wake us up because we get very spiritually lazy. We get into a routine of just filing in here every Sunday and uh, taking it for granted when we should be uh, remembering that though these words were penned by human hands, these words were divinely delivered. And what you are saying in this holy scripture, uh, you are saying it new and fresh to our ears this morning. Uh, So I pray you would help us to hear. I pray you would help us to hear to the point that we are convicted of our sin and that we want to change, that we want to be pleasing to you. Uh, And also, Father, I would pray uh, that we would learn to just revel and bathe in your grace and your mercy. And that we would see that Jesus is far better uh, than any other so-called God that competes for our hearts and our minds. Uh, And that your Holy Scripture rightly taught, rightly divided, as Paul told Timothy, is more than able to meet the demand of our hearts and our lives. Uh, So, Father, keep us from drinking from wells that have water that doesn't satisfy. uh, And give us a taste, a thirst, a hunger. Uh, for your word and uh, give us the satisfaction, the fulfillment, the contentment that comes only with obedience to your commands. So all these things we pray, Father, we could go on and on, but we want you to be exalted. Uh, We want Christ to be exalted. Uh, We want Jesus to come to have first place in our hearts and our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Listen to this testimony. It's not super long, but it's it's kind of long. Uh, it's taken from the Journal of Biblical Counseling, 
Uh, you know, I recommend resources all the time. You cannot go wrong with the Journal of Biblical Counseling and it's online. Uh, any problem any man or woman has ever had will be, indre- will be addressed biblically in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Uh, this uh, issue is from 1996, but uh, it applies to what we're looking at today. Uh, and this is by uh, one of my favorite writers, David Pallison is his name. I put a quote by him uh, at the top of your outline. I didn't put his name there, but that's who it is. He says, I met Sabrina, a 31 year old single woman, when her mother brought her to counsel with me several years ago. Sabrina had agreed to meet me once. Uh, largely to please her mother, who had become concerned about her. After four years in psychotherapy, Sabrina seemed increasingly confused, self-absorbed, friendless, and depressed. Uh, When Sabrina first walked in the room, I noticed uh, a copy of the book Homecoming, a popular self-help book written by John Bradshaw, was wedged in her purse. Uh, Bradshaw advocates the view that sin and misery arise because of dysfunctional families who fail to meet the love needs of their members. Uh, He says that the inner child within each one of us is born pure and wonderful, but becomes contaminated and wounded. A life of misery, rage, compulsion and shame pours out of the cauldron of unmet psychic needs. The codependent strives endlessly to fill the empty tank of love, but is always disappointed. Having described and interpreted the problem, Bradshaw then suggests in his book called Homecoming, which, by the way, I don't recommend the book at all, suggests that such a person find sources of affirmation, that for help, a person should find a support group and a therapist, and they can begin to fill the need and can teach and learn techniques of self-affirmation. Bradshaw is a convert to his own gospel, and his testimony refers to his own healing, and it's threaded throughout his book. He says that he himself learned to affirm and indulge himself. He claims to reconnect with his own inner I amness. Now that I have to pause. That terrifies me because <laughs> in Exodus, which we'll look at in a little bit, Moses said, God, what's your name? And God said, my name is I am. And this Christian writer says he's trying to connect with his own inner I amness. Uh, yikes. Uh, it's a way, he says, to find a new life of wonderful, joyful freedom in which he can express himself. And he urges the reader by exhortation and example to do likewise. But this was Sabrina I had in the room with me, not John Bradshaw. I met the devotee, not the master. And she began to tell me her story. She was a professing Christian who, since her teenage years, had been earnest in her devotional life, regular in church attendance. She'd been well taught doctrinally active in a mercy ministry to homeless people at her church. Long-standing tendencies were in her life of social anxiety, loneliness, and discouragement. And it, has, and it had only worsened in the last five years before her mother prompted her to see a psychotherapist. Over the past three years, her relationship to God had gone stale and God seemed far away. A note of peevishness and self-pity had crept into the way that she talked about God. All those truths that Christian doctrine proclaimed... Seemed like just barren words on a page compared to the deep things she kept discovering about herself through her therapy and her reading. God was more or less a disappointing person. Unsurprisingly, her habits of Bible reading, prayer, public worship and ministry had begun to slack off. Even when she was, quote, faithful, she was just going through the motions. 
The grievous effects of living in a fallen world had not left Sabrina untouched. Her father had betrayed the family, leaving when she was 14 years old after years of angry outbursts and adulteries. Her mother, too, had experienced a multitude of betrayals and had largely uh, offered her any help. Sabrina's peers and her friends uh, were obsessed with the typical teenage values, beauty, popularity, possessions, athlete, uh, athletics and academics. She, too, bought into this value system when she was a teenager. And when she compared herself to it, she failed miserably every day. Then the breakup of the family uh, and her obsession uh, with having all these things that she could not obtain began to create turbulent emotions and behavior in her life. After several years of promiscuity, which to her was one way to at least gain the illusion of being desired by men. Sabrina found Christ when she was 17 and she had joyously embraced forgiveness and a new life and lived a life of sexual purity from thereafter. But we know that God works changes over the period of a lifetime, not instantly. And so the patterns of her heart that had once driven her immorality didn't yield so rapidly. And the many things in her life, uh, though many things had stabilized, she'd gone to college, she'd become a competent elementary school teacher. But as her singleness continued throughout her 20s, her emotions again began to become more troubling. She looked for help. Friends recommended a psychotherapist who was a Christian, and he had suggested that she read Homecoming, as well as similar books by Christians and non-Christians, such as Codependent No More and Love is a Choice uh, by Minerth and Meyer. Uh, Sabrina had found these books incredibly meaningful. I saw myself on every page, she said. She was now reading Bradshaw for the fourth time. Her therapy largely adopted the codependency and dysfunctional family theory that says uh, that we can Christianize these things by looking to Jesus to meet our needs for love and acceptance and affirmation. Her therapy and reading had aroused a great deal of emotion and had given Sabrina the sense that she was continually discovering profound things about herself. But she still lived in a gray world, and for all of her self-discovery, her life was still unraveling. Neither Bradshaw, nor therapy, nor Jesus seemed able to give her any hope, vitality, or significant change at all. How do we help people like Sabrina? How do we help others who are convinced that their core problem lies in what somebody else perpetrated against them? Or their core problem lies in how they were raised or in their core problem lies in their own opinion of themselves, such as low self-esteem. Or they believe that their core problem is genetically hardwired or hormonally imbalanced within them. Uh, you likely know people who have uh, been sent on a long and wild goose chase grasping for answers that never deliver what they promise. How can you help Sabrina to know the solid joys, he says, and the lasting treasures that none but Zion's children can know. So we will come back at the end to see how things turn out for Sabrina. But I think we can all relate to that at some level, can't we? Uh, I think many of us, myself included, have gone through dry times where God seems far away. You open the Bible and you're reading scripture or a well-intending brother or sister, perhaps even I have said to you, uh, you need to read your Bible more and you need to pray more. And you think to yourself, I've tried that. It doesn't work. Uh, it's, I mean, we've all been there. We've experienced that. So what do we do when we hit that 
wall. Psalm 145 is going to point out a great starting point, a great place to begin when we're struggling like that uh, and how to help uh, deal with situations like that, encouraging ourselves and encouraging others. It is interesting to me. I don't remember the reference, so you'll have to help me out. I think it's the book of Hebrews where it says, and it's quoting the Old Testament. uh, If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Uh, So. If I'm feeling far away from God, if the pages of Scripture are feeling empty, the problem is not that God moved. The problem is that I either moved away or stopped moving toward him because he will never turn away someone who seeks him earnestly. But it's hard for many people like Sabrina to praise God because they worship a therapeutic Jesus who seems far away. The Bible seems abstract and irrelevant to our everyday problems. Because we're thinking if God exists to meet my needs and to make me feel better about myself, it's not happening. So where is he? Christ feels far away because in my thinking he exists to meet my needs and he's not accommodating. So what we do is we'll go looking in other places for other gods to meet these needs. But what we find out is they begin to dominate and enslave us and they don't ever deliver what they promise. Christ, the Bible, God's grace will always make better sense of my experiences, my behaviors, my thoughts, emotions, attitudes, cravings, lusts and longings. Better sense than any other so-called solution. What's interesting about the world's solutions to man's problems is that they're focused pretty much solely on only the symptoms Man's solutions to our problems don't have the answers or the causes or the solutions. Uh, I know that uh, maybe some of you are familiar with the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, If you look closely at that, even in the preface at the beginning, it says in so many words, this book does not contain any causes or solutions. This book contains only descriptions of the maladies that we suffer. As you look up any struggle in that DSM, it'll just give you a list of the symptoms. Uh, If you're exhibiting this, if you're feeling this, if you're thinking this, then you have this. Uh, It never ventures into causes. That's why I love God's word as a better tool for solution, because it gives me the causes and it gives me the solutions. It's interesting. We just don't give it a chance like we should. Listen carefully, because the Bible knows what your problem is. Anyone ever say that to you? You know what your problem is? The Bible knows what your problem is, and the Bible knows what your need is, and the Bible knows the cure for your problems. And here's the crux of what we're talking about today. So listen very carefully. If you're tempted to zone out, listen right now and then zone out afterwards. Our deepest problem is not... An unmet need, such as being loved or being accepted or being affirmed or being respected or being appreciated or having confidence or having self-esteem or learning to accept and love myself. My deepest problem is not an unmet need. My deepest problem is a heart that is ruled by a demand to have that need. My deepest problem is not an unmet need. My deepest problem is a sinful heart that is ruled by a demand to have that need met. 
All those things. And that demanding heart quickly becomes an enslaving, voracious craving. A craving that promises satisfaction in different places, people and things, but never delivers on that satisfaction. If God doesn't give me what I need, I'll go get it somewhere else and I will be autonomous. I will rule myself. I will be the king of my own life. We listen to other kings that pull us away from the true king, Jesus and his word, other sources that claim to have the truth and knowledge about what we need and how we can get it. And we forget that great saying. I love this saying, even though it's sad. Heresies are the unpaid debts of the church. Heresies are the unpaid debts of the church. What does that mean? That means that the church accepts and promotes solutions for man's problems that are antithetical to sound scripture. And then the results never deliver what they promise. And so we find ourselves as a church in a bigger mess than before we started. They simply pull God's people away from their king and his words to give false hope, false healing. Listen to how God admonishes his people Israel. About how important internal obedience to him from the heart is. He says to them in Jeremiah chapter 7. When I brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to them or command them about burnt offerings or sacrifices, outward things, religious practices. This is what I commanded them when I brought them out of Egypt. I said to them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people. And you will walk in all the ways which I command you and then it will be well with you. Isn't that interesting? Obedience to God's word leads to health, mental, physical, spiritual. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. But what did they do? They walked in their own counsels. I'm so glad we don't ever do that. We don't ever think that we know better than God, right? They walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart, And they went backward, not forward. That's really sad, but true. In Jeremiah chapter 8, Jeremiah scratches his head. He's puzzled and he rhetorically asks himself, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of my people been restored? In other words, you have the answers right before you and yet you choose not to follow. And you wonder, Jeremiah says, why your lives are messed up or why you struggle. God unleashes his utter dismay at his people who so easily turn away from real help to chase after false help. He says in Jeremiah 2, has a nation changed gods when there were not gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When we learn the hard way that worshiping at the altar of another God, uh, we learn the hard way that that always makes God seem far away. And it always makes biblical truth seem abstract and irrelevant. What we do is we tend to make Jesus an errand boy of another God's demands. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, we listen to counsel that's opposed to scripture about what the solution to my problem is and about what I need. And then I go after it, leaving God behind and his word behind. And then I pray and ask Jesus to provide through this. We make him the errand boy of a false God. But here's the thing about Jesus. Here's the thing about the Lord. When we do that. Looking for answers in all the wrong places, looking for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for contentment in all the wrong places. Jesus will never cooperate with the deceit in the life of one he loves. He won't do it. He is not going to partner with me and a false God to get my needs satisfied and met. Because why? Not because he hates me, but because he loves me. And because if he is king of my heart and king of my life, he is not going to share his throne or his glory with another so-called God. Whatever God that is, I've set up in my heart and my life. He will never allow us to be happy serving an idol. He will never allow us to be happy serving an idol. What we're going to see in Psalm 145 is that Christ must be praised and obeyed because he is inherently worthy of. To be praised and obeyed. He is the king, the sovereign, the royal deity on the throne. He rules my life and he is always good, always kind, always patient, always gentle, always merciful, always faithful, always loving and always righteous, holy and perfect in all his ways. All others are lying counterfeits. He told us as much, didn't he, in John 10? I've come that you may have life, but the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And here's some hope. Here's some hope. Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, he is our crucified Savior. He is our crucified Savior. What does that mean? That means that he died for all of our lusts, all of our lies, all of our cravings, all of our desires, all of our pursuing after false gods and all the bad fruit that goes along with all of that. His death paid for all of that so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be set on a path more righteous. As we see our real problem, our deepest need, our craving, deceitful, demanding heart, And then we seek him. He will forgive and he will heal. If we allow ourselves to be ruled by Christ, becoming slaves to him, then and only then are we liberated and set free from everything that traps us and makes us feel miserable. Here's some questions for you. We're not going to say it out loud and don't raise your hand because you might be humiliated. If you raise your hand, I'll raise mine up too, so you're not alone. Think about this. Jot it down if you want. But what rules your heart? What rules your heart? In other words, what do you think about the most? What dominates your thinking? What do you long for more than anything else? What do you live for? What do you desperately crave? And whatever that is, is... What the king of your life is. That is your God. That is your king. But. God is a much better king. Psalm 145. 
much better king. By the way, serving anyone except King Jesus will only lead to horrible slavery. But being enslaved to King Jesus is the only way to be liberated and set free. Psalm 145 is interesting. It's the last of the 75 Psalms that David wrote. It's not the last Psalm in the book of the Psalms. How many chapters in the book of the Psalms? Pop quiz, 150. Very good. I'll just pretend everybody said one. Everyone say 150. Boy, you guys are smart. Okay. It's the last Psalm that David wrote. But more than that, these are the last words ever uttered by David in our Bibles. And chronologically so. We never have, we never hear anything from David after the end of Psalm 145. He passes off the scene of history. This is his last will and testament, so to speak. His last words. Think of some famous last words. And because I love history, everything I could think of came from history. Think of some famous last words. I think of... uh, Patrick Henry, remember, give me liberty or give me. And they gave him death. I don't know if I would have said that if I were him. Give me liberty or take me down off this wagon. That's what I would have said. Remember what John Adams, President John Adams uttered on his deathbed right before he breathed his last. And he was wrong. (laughs) But he said, Thomas Jefferson lives. Well, Thomas Jefferson had died a few hours (laughs) earlier. Uh, what about Nathan Hale? I love history, sorry, and I love early American history. Remember Nathan Hale? I think he was one of the Green Mountain Boys, and he said, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. So famous last words. These are David's last words. What would you expect this great man, this man who was a warrior, who was a lover, who was a leader, who was a family man, who was a king, he was a, a type of Christ, His very existence and rule was to typify Jesus Christ. What is the last thing that he's going to say? Well, if you know anything about David at all, you know that he's going to he's going to praise God with his last breath. And he opens with. A very significant statement. I hope you can see that. Okay, he opens with a very significant statement. I will extol you, my God, O king. Here the king of Israel calls God his king. God is the king of all creation and all people. And he is your king, whether you recognize it or not. And God has a right. Please get this. God has a right to rule your life because he is the one who created you. You were created for his glory and his pleasure. He has every right to rule over your life. And by the way, even for those of us who reject his rule, I got a newsflash. That doesn't change anything. He still rules over your life whether you love him or whether you hate him. This is not popular. I've never been one to be afraid to be unpopular. But David does not believe in self-rule. He does not believe in self-governance. He does not believe in the popular notion of believe in yourself. 
He doesn't believe that he should have faith in himself or confidence in himself. He's not looking to get high self-esteem or self-affirmation. Why? Because all of these things will be directly opposed to the kingship of God over his life. See what we mean by using Jesus as an errand boy for a false god? David would have been opposed to all these things. Because they would be taking God off the throne. So when we come into this psalm, we want to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be ruled by Christ? What does it mean that Jesus is the king of my life? What does the ultimate king deserve? In David's time, it would have been very unheard of to bring a gift to a king. But what gift can we bring a king? What gift do you buy the man who has everything? What can we give God that he does not already possess? What is there that God does not possess? Pop quiz, trick question. Nothing. Nothing. Everything already belongs to God. Psalm 50 says, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. I know every bird on every mountain and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you because the whole world is mine and everything it contains. Psalm 50, 10 through 12. That's a great passage to show someone that you can't get to heaven by doing good deeds. Wouldn't do any good. God already has everything, owns everything, is everything. There's nothing I can do that he doesn't already have or that he doesn't already rule. So David gives God the only thing that he can give, the only thing we can give God. And what is that? Our praise and worship. Say it with me. Praise and worship. That is what David offers to God. Look at verse one. And following, I will extol you, my God, O King. Love that word. And I will praise your name. Some of your Bibles may say bless. And that's the word for praise. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Amazing words. Three statements that he makes here. It's on your outlines. You have some blanks. Three statements. First, he says, I will praise you. This is important. These are David's last words. That he wants the world to know about God and about himself. His last will and testament. He says, I will praise you, my God, my king. What is praise? There's a definition of praise right there. It's pretty simple. Four words. Read it with me if you can see it. Acknowledge God as God. That's what it means to praise God. Acknowledging him for who he is. The sovereign king, the holy one, just, righteous, merciful, awesome, majestic. Everything we find in the Bible, holy scripture that describes God. Listen to Webster's English Dictionary, the definition for extol. 
It means to place on high, to lift up, to elevate, to elevate by praise, to eulogize, to magnify, to spotlight one's virtue or an act or a person. Synonyms for the word extol. Instead of saying extol, we could say praise, applaud, commend, magnify, celebrate, loud, glorify. That's a big deal, isn't it? Does it say do those things for God or to do those things for ourselves? For God. For God. Listen closely because you may not agree. That's why I want you to listen closely. I love the looks on your faces when you don't agree. Well, should I show him that I'm not happy? But he's the pastor, so I can't give him that look of... Worship is not coming to God just to get things from him. We are allowed to do that. There is a time and a place for that. But worship is not coming to God to get something from him. Worship and praise is not even confessing our sins and pleading for grace, though there's a time and a place for that as well. Worship is acknowledging God to be God. And that's what the whole of Psalm 145 is doing. It's extolling God for all that God is. His attributes, his virtues. Because he's worthy. He's inherently worthy in his nature to be praised. And folks, it doesn't matter if I have been disappointed And and I'm not saying this to be harsh. It doesn't matter if I have been hurt, if I have been offended, if I have been victimized. Those things are important. Those things have to be dealt with. But in any and every and all situations, he is worthy of praise. My human experience doesn't change the reality that God is worthy of praise. David says, I will praise you every day. Ooh, and you're going to like this for all the wrong reasons. Even though David set aside the Sabbath, and even though we set aside Sunday explicitly for a time to gather to praise and worship God, David declares that he's not going to praise God only on the Sabbath, and neither should we praise God only on Sunday. David is going to praise God every day, Monday through Sunday. Here we go. When I do this, you know something bad's coming. When I do this. That's my nervous tick. Okay. Many of us drag ourselves in here on Sundays, hoping to be rescued and restored and then sent back out again. And I suppose that in a certain level, in a certain sense, that's okay if that happens. But many of us live all week like Esau, and then we come in here and expect to worship like Jacob on Sunday. We approach Sundays with a taker's mentality. What is church going to do for me today? What's in it for me? How many times have I heard people say about church, well, I really didn't get anything out of that today? Newsflash. You know why you didn't get anything out of that today? Because you didn't put anything into that today. 
Takers will not be blessed. Only givers will be blessed. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's an eternal biblical principle that applies just as much to worship as to anything else. Sunday is the culmination, the high point, the celebration of a week of worship. Monday through Saturday, I praise and worship God on my own. And on Sunday, I come together with the corporate church body and we praise and we worship God together. But if I'm not worshiping God Monday through Saturday, then Sunday falls flat, empty, far away, distant, irrelevant, powerless. We often look for Sunday to do some sort of mystical, spiritual, you know, work in our lives. Oh, it's Sunday. Thank goodness. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go in there and they're going to zap me and I'm going to pep, pep up. But Sunday worship is a time for us to come together to celebrate the worship we've experienced during the week and give of ourselves to God. Monday through Saturday lays a foundation for Sunday to be special. For many people, Sunday is not special because they don't worship Monday through Saturday. We come in here and there's sort of a disconnect. It feels weird. It feels strange. We don't feel like ourselves. It's just not because we haven't been worshiping. We come in here, like I said, we've lived like Esau. and We come in here thinking we're going to feel like Jacob. It doesn't work like that. If we're not praising God every day, our hearts will not be praising him on Sunday either. Then he says, I will praise you forever and ever. I think that's self-explanatory. We will be worshiping God for eternity in heaven, even after our life on earth is over. We'll worship God alongside all the saints from all of earth history. So if this is true, why don't we start practicing now? Psalm 145 gives us some practice drills. Practice in praising God. Look at verse 3. Your greatness is unsearchable. Your greatness is unsearchable. What's he talking about? Here David's thinking explicitly of the mighty works of God that he does in the world that should elicit our praise and worship. He uses words like works, acts, and power. He mentions God's greatness, might, glorious splendor, majesty, wonderful works, awesome acts, and power. He directs our attention to how God reveals himself in nature. We call that general revelation. In other words, if we can look at the surging ocean waves and the star-filled nights and the soaring mountains and not be moved to praise God, then we're worse off than a blind person who has no sight. That's what David said. Romans 1 enforces this. It tells us that God has revealed himself to all men in nature and that it's clear and obvious. He says there, for what can be known about God is plain to them. I like this that I came across. I saw a story said a prison evangelist was preaching to a group of inmates about how God shows himself to all men in nature. And he said to them, if that don't turn you on, you ain't got no switches. I would agree with that. How can we be out in nature and not praise God? How can you go to Yosemite and look at those waterfalls and look at those valleys and and all those things and not praise God. As great and wonderful as God's works of creation are, a person who's come to know God's goodness in Jesus Christ cannot stop praising God at creation because the greatest works of God are his salvation works. 
For David and Israel, this always involved God's rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and then setting them free. For us, it always involves the atoning death of Jesus Christ to rescue us from the death penalty of our sin and setting us free. Notice how David closes this stanza. Look at verse seven. He draws our memory to what? God's abundant goodness and righteousness, specific saving acts of God. Because can we see God's goodness and righteousness in nature? No, those attributes cannot be seen just by looking at nature. But they can be seen at the cross in the death of Christ for our sin. In Jesus' atoning death on our behalf, God was both righteous and good. He was merciful and holy. Look at verse 4, where David mentions that one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What is he talking about there? He's not saying merely that one generation will pass on stories about God to the next generation, though that's true. But if you look at how that's worded there, it means that each generations of each generation of believers will add to the story of what God has done specifically with them. And here's some hope and some help for people like Sabrina that we read about earlier. What David is saying is that God continues to act for us and in us, even in our own generation. He is a living God. He is an active God. He is a caring God. He is a loving God. Yes, we have stories from ancient times in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that God is done in the course of human events or in the course of our own lives. And he says every generation should share with the generation that comes behind them all that God had done with them. And that in itself is part of our worship and our praise to him. Did you ever sing that song in kids church with the stop sign? Stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Remember, you'd always fight over. I want to hold it. I want to. Remember singing that song? Stop. He forgave my sins and he saved my soul. He cleansed my heart and he made me whole. I can't even believe I remember that. Stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. That's what David is saying. We turn to our children. We turn to our family members. We turn to our neighbors and we say, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. That's a testimony. That's all testimony is. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Verses 8 through 13, David then praises God for his grace, his compassion, his patience, and his rich love. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse 8, is an echo of Moses' experience with God on Mount Sinai. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Remember in Exodus 34, Moses said, let me see your face, God. And God said, well, you can't see me face to face because no one can see me face to face and die. But what I will do is I'll pass by you and I will let you hear my voice. I will proclaim my name to you, my intimate personal name, which Exodus chapter three tells us his name is I am. Exodus 34, 6 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the Old Testament. Did you know that? It's quoted in Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, 105, 111, 145, Joel 2, and Jonah 4. Isn't that interesting? 
Exodus 34, 6 is quoted so often for a good reason, because it speaks of mercy. And mercy is the amazing, utterly surprising thing about God. Yes, he's almighty. Yes, he's all wise. Yes, he's all knowing. And you'd expect those attributes of God. But we would not expect mercy. What a surprise. What a surprise that this all powerful, all knowing, all wise, sovereign king, ruler of the universe shows mercy. But beyond that, it goes deeper. The unexpected thing is that God is gracious to those who spurn his rightful authority as king, who even murdered his son, Jesus, when he came to save them. But we say, OK, God, your name is I am. But what does that really mean? What does what, what is the I am like? And that's the answer that comes out of Exodus 34. These are amazing, amazing words. If we know our own hearts and we are honest, these are amazing words. God says, I'll tell you, Moses, what I'm like. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am slow to get angry. I am abounding in love and I am abounding in faithfulness. And I maintain my love to thousands And I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That, Moses, is the kind of God that I am. Those are amazing words. Another theme in this stanza is God's kingdom. David addresses, in verses 8 through 13, addresses God as his king in verse 1. And then he mentions God's kingdom in this little section five times, five times. Why is it important that David mentions the kingdom of God? I think it's a reminder that one part of God's goodness is his rule over us. Because we cannot rule ourselves. Hmm. Everybody say, hmm. Yeah. What do you mean? I thought I was doing a pretty good job. I'm in, you know, where you always hear all the time, take control of your life, you know, uh, do what's best for you. You got to take some time to work on yourself. And it is a reminder that one part of God's goodness is his rule over us because we cannot rule ourselves. It always ends in disaster because he is gracious, compassionate, merciful and loving. God gets involved in the details of our lives when he rules over us. Even when we rebel against his authority, his unshakable covenant love will not let go of us. He pursues us as royal subjects living in his kingdom. It goes deeper. It is a work of God's grace in us when we come to see the necessity of his rule. If we do. When I come to that point where I confess and I realize that I need to humble myself before God and I need to humble myself under the commands that he has given me in Holy Scripture, that is an act of grace because a proud, sinful, rebellious, autonomous, loving heart doesn't say that. Our pride would never say that. And it takes an act of God's grace 
to get me to the point where I willingly bow down in obedience and service to my king. Because I want to rule myself. I want to go my own way. You know, King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, he took the glory of God to himself, didn't he? When he looked out over the city of Babylon, and this is what he declared in his pride. Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power? And I have built this great city for the glory of my own majesty. Now, we may not say it like that, but we strut around. Ooh, look at me. Look what I did. You know, look at my trophies, you know. Look how good I am. Ooh, look at my outfit. You know, look at look at my haircut. But you didn't say that this morning. Reuben did. He said, ooh, did you see her haircut? But that's not pride. But we do that, don't we? Because our sinful hearts crave attention. We crave approval. We crave affirmation. We crave to be exalted. We crave to be noticed. We crave for success. All things opposed to the rule of Christ. But God judges Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogance, doesn't he? He takes away his sanity. He drives him out to the fields where he acts like a wild animal for seven years. Finally, he comes to his senses when his pride is broken. And he praises God. And guess what words he uses to praise his God when he comes to his senses? Psalm 145, verse 13 is what King Nebuchadnezzar utters. Daniel 4 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar said, Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And when a person has learned this lesson, he's learned a lot. It's even more important, though, isn't it, to become a grateful subject of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. So we come to the last stanza of Psalm 145, and David presents the faithfulness of God. God the provider. He tells us there are four ways that God provides for his creation. Verse 14 tells us that he helps the inadequate. The Lord sustains all who fall. He raises up all who are bowed down. He gives food in verses 15 to 16 to everyone. Verses 18 and 19, how sweet that he answers those who pray. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. Verse 20, he protects those who belong to him. How does God demonstrate his faithfulness? He does it by keeping his promises and caring for his creatures. When we fall, he lifts us up. When we bow down because of distress, he restores us. When we're hungry, he gives us food. When we look to him with our hands open, empty and held out, he satisfies us with good things. God is so faithful that these verses even speak about him caring for all of his creation, not just human beings, but also the entire animal kingdom. Verses 13 and 16 point out that all he has made and every living thing. And his great promise goes even deeper for those that are redeemed by the blood of Christ. What the animal kingdom needs is food from God. What men and women need, most of all, is God himself. You know, the great St. Augustine said this, one of my favorite quotes. Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. 
God promises to give us himself if we come to him through Christ. And he'll meet every other right desire that we may have. The psalmist says in Psalm 81, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Paul told the Philippian Christians, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He knows what we need. He knows what we need better than we know ourselves. The perfect king knows what we need. Look at the wonderful universality in these closing verses. He uses the word 11. He uses the word all 11 times. All his promises, all he has made, all those who fall, all those who are bowed down, all look to you, all his ways, all he has made, all who call him, all who love him. God is good to all, so all ought to praise him. Look at the end of Psalm 145. The very last verse. How does he close it? He says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will praise his holy name forever and ever. And if you don't need to turn there, but when you get to the very end of all the Psalms, the last verse of the last chapter, chapter 150, verse six, David's or the very last words in the collection of the Psalms says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Look at verses 17 and 18 in Psalm 145. It says, they say the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Please apply that to yourself. In all the ways that he's dealing with you, he is righteous. In all the ways that he is dealing with you today, he is kind. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. He is near to all who call upon him in truth. It's an interesting statement. Sometimes we try to call upon God in our own truth rather than his truth. This means that God is just and right in responding to those who have needs and who call upon him. Those who are in peril and seek salvation, God will answer their prayers. Throughout our entire lives, God shows himself to be good, caring, saving and persevering. One last thing. Why does David mention the wicked in verse 20? The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Why in all this praise, this great song of praise, why does he mention the wicked? Because he's reminding us that our praise must still be offered in a sinful world. And that as we seek to serve the king, there will be other false kings who try to take our allegiance and our loyalty away from the Lord. Our praise must be offered still in a sinful world. We're not in heaven yet, but we should still be praising God now. Verse 19 mentions those who fear the Lord. And verse 20 mentioned those who love the Lord. The connection between the fear of God and the love of God cannot be separated. If we only fear God without loving him, then we're only in cowering bondage. But if we only love God without fearing him, then we treat him with unholy familiarity. We love God because he is the all gracious one and we fear God because he is the all exalted one. So Psalm 145, 21 are the last words we have from David in the Bible. It's his last will and testament. It's a fine legacy for future generations. He praises God and he invites others to praise him also. What do you want your legacy to be? Don't wait until you die. Start praising God now and invite others to praise him with you. Submit to Christ as king now. 
Because eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Good news for Sabrina. Pallison says the next time we met, perhaps a month later, Sabrina mentioned that she had quit meeting with her therapist. It had seemed thin and empty like a corn husk to her. The word of God and the word of the living God, prayer to that God, honest and constructive Christian friends, doctrines of grace and truth and ministry to others. She noticed that her dry bones were coming back to life. The real issues in her life kept getting addressed, both outside and inside counseling. She saw numerous ways that her craving for human approval and her terror of rejection played out in her life. And she began to find Christ and the courage to love people in those numerous fresh situations. She began to deal with bitterness at her father and disappointment with her mother, forgiving them. She began to try on new ways of relating to them. Her newfound courage was quite remarkable. She started to deal with her own patterns of fear and ineffectualness and made several major life decisions over the next several months. Sabrina had taken the next step in learning to live life in God's world from the standpoint of faith rather than in the quicksand of human approval. When Sabrina started tasting the truth, the counterfeit lost all its savor. A couple months later, she commented to me at church, you know, I really have no desire to read those books anymore. It's funny how much I used to think was in them, how much I thought I was in them, but I'm not anymore. Case closed. This psychologized young woman had instead found herself in the word of the living God. What a great ending. Let's pray. Uh, We're just going to close in prayer and As you're leaving today, uh, go ahead and stand. As you're leaving today, we were going to sing, but we're out of time. Uh, Psalm 145 was meant to be a song. It says a song of David, a song of praise. I found a great version of uh, that song being sung. So as you're leaving today, we're just going to play that song. But notice how he takes the words of scripture and he puts it in there for us. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for speaking to us today. Uh, Father, may we be very careful about who and what we allow to rule our lives. Most importantly, make us very aware of our own heart's cravings, our own heart's desires. Because those desires, even desires that are legitimate and good, can become demanding and then turn sinful. If they start to rule over us and we start thinking that our Heavenly Father owes us. Father, may we understand the cure and the help and the hope that comes with praise and worship and thankfulness. Being in your presence and reminding ourselves that you are good to us, that you are righteous, that you are just. Even when we get ourselves entangled into sins and we begin to be dominated and enslaved, you are there to rescue, you are there to help. So I pray that for those of those, those that are struggling this morning, That you would show them the way out with your word. That they would seek godly, biblical counsel for help and encouragement. I pray you would humble each of us. That you would expose our hearts to ourselves. And that our desire would be allowed to have you rule in every single situation that we find ourselves in. That you would receive the glory and the praise and the honor. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Yeah, Dave, go ahead and roll the song as we're leaving. Thanks for being here today. Don't forget to sign up out in the foyer for the CEF celebration.
praise, Lord. I will praise you always, my God and King. I will bless and honor your name, Lord. Always and forever, my soul will sing. Such a vast, unsearchable greatness. Great is Yahweh, worthy of all our praise. Let your people sound through the ages, all your awesome works till the end of days. We have seen your splendor and glory.